0: Welcome to Kishwaukee Bible Church. As we've walked on Sundays through the book of Jonah, I didn't want to try to jump into the flow of what Jesse was doing. We didn't have time to really collaborate about that. So uh, I I chose instead to do a little bit of a detour, not a huge detour, um, a little bit, just sort of a side trip, as you heard the passage read uh, earlier, you know that this passage includes a reference to Jonah, so I thought, okay, well that's a fair sort of little off-ramp uh, to, to take, and I don't, know, um, I don't know if your family is like mine, if you can relate to this, in, when we do road trips, um, there are those of us that are in the, the, the van or the car that um, treat a road trip more of a road race. The goal is to get from point A to point B with no letters in between, right? As fast as possible. Um, There are others of us in the van that may like actually want to look out the window and enjoy a billboard or a road sign or a wayside or whatever. And so we're not so concerned, you know, the destination will still be there when we get there. Let's take our time. And um, so for those of you that actually, you know, enjoy stopping to see the world's biggest ball of twine, or I want to go to the diner and I'll, I'll have the extra cup of coffee, even if that means I got to take the next rest stop along the way, this is for you. This is the side trip. Um, and for those that want to get to the end, Jonah will be back next week, Lord willing, uh, as Jesse brings it back to us. But, uh, but for this part, um, I want to take this little unplanned adventure and, and look at this passage in Luke chapter 11 together. And, um, and, and on this little side trip, I want to take a look at what does it look like to have dinner with Jesus? Jesus is preaching he's, or, or teaching. He's talking to the crowds, and, and there's an opportunity for, um, for a fellow to invite Jesus over. And so I thought, this will be interesting. How does Jesus use Jonah in the way he teaches, and, and how can we learn from it? And I'll be honest, this... Um, this passage has long been a favorite of mine uh, for a variety of reasons. It does talk about lawyers. Uh, for those that don't know, I am a lawyer by trade. Um, and so that's actually what drew me to this passage originally was, oh, hey, Jesus is talking to lawyers. Let's see what he has to say. Um, but it, it has become a passage that I actually have gone back to several times just to sort of chew on and reflect on. Um, and And, as I've done that, it's had a lot of meaning for me, um, not just for the lawyer part but um but but really, this is a passage that I kind of see myself in it. A lot of my faith journey is reflected in this um, and and I'll share a little bit of that with you as we go um, but but it's more than just what does Jesus have to say to to lawyers? He has a lot to say to the crowds, he has a lot to say to the religious leaders of the day, and 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 to others, and um, and I think he'll have some things to say to us. I think he'll have some things that'll be meaningful to us. Um, but what I think I, I'd like for us to to think about as we walk through this half a chapter or so um, is, and first of all, what's Luke trying to say? What does he want to communicate about this little um, excerpt of Jesus' life and teaching and and what he's doing. And I and I would challenge us with sort of three questions in looking at what Luke has to say. I would ask, are you wise enough to see the signs? There's signs to be seen. And it takes wisdom to see those signs. Are you wise enough to see those signs? And then I would ask, if you see the signs, are you wise enough to follow the signs? Those are actually two different things. Seeing the signs and following the signs. Are you wise enough to actually follow the signs that you see? And then, are you wise enough to show the signs to others? If you see it and you follow it, can you then show others how to do the same? And so I want to unfold that a bit. And as we do, uh, let me first pray and then set the stage a bit for where we're going. So... Father God, we have come to a a point in the service where we want to simply open your Word and hear from it. God, this isn't what maybe we had planned for the morning um, weeks ago, but it's what you've planned, uh, and so we want to submit ourselves to your plans, not our own. God, I pray that you would give us wisdom and ears to hear what you would say. Give us eyes to see truth. Lord, let your Spirit be present and active. And moving. And Father, I pray that my words would get out of the way of your words and that my brothers and sisters here would be challenged and encouraged and lifted up by the power of your word proclaimed. In Christ's name, amen. So here's the stage. This is the Gospel of Luke. You know the story of of the Gospels. Jesus is traveling about. He's He's teaching, he's going from place to place, healing, performing miracles. This is right in the midst of all of that. And a crowd is gathering. This is sort of the height of Jesus' popularity. He's done all sorts of miracles, and so we see that people are just pouring in to hear him, to follow him, to pursue him. And here they come and they gather. And, and Luke says, when the crowds were increasing, he began to say, he began to teach, And and if this was a crowd that had gathered to hear the warm and fuzzy Jesus, they are going to be disappointed from the beginning. And he opens this generation is an evil generation. It seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given it except the sign of Jonah. This is an evil generation. Not the way to open up a, a, a talk that's meant to win friends. But a talk that is meant to proclaim truth. It's meant to make these people think. An evil generation. Why? When, when Jesus comes and these people stand to hear, or, or sit to hear him and, and some are, are there knowing this must be the Messiah. We've seen many miracles proclaimed, performed. And others are saying, hmm, we've heard of this man, we've heard from this man, who is he really? Is this the one? Is this the Christ? Is this the one who will save Israel from oppression? And, and this is not the first time this idea of a sign has been put out. Jesus says, you want to see signs. You want to see miraculous confirmation of who I am. This generation asks for a sign. No sign will be given to you but one. But this wasn't the first time Jesus was asked for a sign. In fact, it happened repeatedly. And if you go back a few chapters, the first time that we hear about Jesus being asked for a sign is from a good friend of his a distant relative of his, John the Baptist. John the Baptist had been preaching and Herod didn't like what he had to say and so Herod throws him in prison. And from prison, John sends two of his faithful assistants to Jesus and says, ask Jesus, are you really the one? Or will there be someone else? I think I know, but I really want to hear it from your lips. And Jesus doesn't answer directly, at least not in the way that you might hope. Yes, I'm the Messiah. You are correct. He says, go back to John and tell him what you've seen. In Luke 11, Jesus says, go and tell John what you have seen and heard. The blind receive their sight. The lame walk. Lepers are cleansed. The deaf hear. The dead are raised up. The poor have good news preached to them. And that's it. And why would he do that? Why wouldn't he just answer the question? Well, because these were the signs that were laid out. The Jews knew there would be signs to proclaim the coming of the Messiah. They'd been prophesied. And those, the people knew when the blind receive their sight, when the lame walk, when the deaf hear, when all these things are happening, it's the sign that the Messiah is arriving. And so Jesus says to John's disciples, Go back. Tell him what you've seen. Tell him what you've heard. That will be confirmation enough. Now, here's the irony from, from Luke 7 to Luke 11, there's a whole bunch more miracles. Jesus raises people from the dead, Jesus heals countless thousands, Jesus feeds multitudes with a couple of loaves of bread. Miracles are all over the place. And then Jesus stands up and he says, you want a sign, you evil generation. Only one will be given. But are you wise enough to see it? And Jesus goes on to explain, he said, others have seen it. And they haven't even seen it firsthand. The queen of the south, he refers back to the story of of King Solomon, when the queen of Sheba comes to him and says, I've heard of your wisdom, I want to see it firsthand. Jesus says, this queen who came seeking the wisdom of Solomon will rise up against this generation and testify against you. Because she knew enough, and you don't. And not just the Queen of Sheba, but Jonah himself and the people of Nineveh. Jonah went to the people of Nineveh and called them to repent. And and the people of Nineveh did. And those who repented at the word of Jonah will rise up to testify against this generation and say, How could you miss it? How could you not see what was right in front of your eyes? It's right there. How can all these things happen? And the people question, who are you really? It's tempting for us to sit here 2,000 years later and say, how foolish, how silly. But is it really? If the miracles were performed today, in DeKalb County, that were performed in Galilee. Would we be any different? Would we have the wisdom to see the signs? Jesus goes on and and he says this really sort of odd, almost out of place little illustration. No one, after lighting a lamp, puts it in a cellar or under a basket, but on a stand so that those who enter may see the light. Your eye is the lamp of your body. When your eye is healthy, your whole body is full of light. But when it is bad, your body is full of darkness. What? What's this light and darkness and body and eye have to do with Jonah and the queen and seeing the signs? What do you see? You see the lame walk, the blind see, the deaf hear, the dead raised. Those come into your eyes. These are the events that are unfolding before you. But but does that flood your soul with light? Does it flood your soul with redeeming, healing, life-giving light? Because the eye is the way it enters. But that's not all there is to seeing the signs. God has to do something. God has to take that and he has to fill you with what it takes to truly see the signs. And here Jesus says, these things may come in through your eye, but but you're either going to be filled with light or the light that comes into your eye is going to be darkness to you. Because this will be the very thing that God will point to 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 judge and to say, I gave you all the signs you needed and you refused to accept and you're condemned. Not condemned because of what you did or didn't do, but because of what you did or didn't believe. Because you see and you believe. Or you see and you don't believe. And when you see and you believe, you're full of light and life. And when you see and you don't believe, you're full of darkness. And only God can provide the difference. But I pray, if you're standing and you're staring at the signs, that God will fill you with light, and that the sign of Jonah will flood your being. And so I pray that God would use the eyes of your body to allow you to see the signs that are written on the page, that were recorded in history, that were performed in all the world around Jesus, and to see not just the signs themselves, but the one that the signs point to, Jesus, the Messiah. But it's interesting, this little transition happens, right, in the story. We go from Jesus teaching the crowds to Jesus talking at a dinner. But it's not the end of the lesson because we can see the signs and God can grant us the sight to see that they're there. But do we follow the signs? And this is where it's interesting to go into the home of a Pharisee alongside Jesus and the others that were there. And to ask the question, just because you see them, is that enough? Or are you smart enough, wise enough, grace-filled enough to follow the signs that you see? Many years ago, um, I had a cousin who, uh, she and her husband lived in Germany for a couple of years, and um, she was, you know, a, one of those cousins that we had a close relationship with and were good friends with, and, and she... Got this opportunity to travel to, to Europe with her husband because of his job. And so they spent a couple of years living there. And so we did, you know, what any good, loving family member would do. <laughs> You're putting us up, right? <laughs> Take advantage. I mean, you know, allow them to express their generosity to us. <laughs> and we said, hey, wouldn't you love to host us for some sightseeing? Of course, they'd love to. Come on over. So we got to, um, we got to go to, Ger- Melissa and I got to go to Germany for a little bit and we got to see some things that they could show us and it was a lot of fun. But, but one of the adventures that we, we did, one day we decided we were just going to drive through the German countryside. The particular area where they lived, um, near the Rhine River Valley, one of the areas of the world that's supposed to have more castles than any place else in the world and we thought let's just go see what we can see a beautiful countryside, a lot of rolling hills and such. Let's go find some castles. Okay, so we set out. And as we were going, you know, you could see things off in the distance, and we had a little guidebook, but we're like, all right, how do we get from here to there? Sort of back to the road trip. How do we get from point A to point B? Point B being a castle up on the hill that we don't even know exactly how to get to where it is. And so we tried sort of the guidebook method, and we tried sort of the, well, it's kind of that direction method, you know, but when the when the roads are windy and hilly, it's a little hard to, it's not DeKalb, all right? This is not Illinois where you just see it 20 miles down the road and you just go. Pretty soon, we figured out the secret. The secret was this little German word that at first none of us knew, Schloss. <laughs> right? Schloss, yes. I have some Germans in the front. Um, Schloss. Uh, uh, It it refers to a castle or an estate or a big, beautiful home. And and Germany was kind enough to print these signs and put them by the road with little arrows that would say, Schloss, this way. Well, for a couple hours, we're driving around seeing these signs, and and they meant nothing to us. And then as we kind of put two and two together, we're like, wait, if we follow this one, we end up at this really cool castle. Let's follow another one. What do you know? You follow the sign that says castle this way, you end up at a castle. But we didn't know until we realized what does schloss mean? It means go to the castle. So look at Luke. What are the signs? And do you follow them? This, this Pharisee makes an invitation to Jesus. Come to my home for dinner. Now, Right away, you, you ought to get a clue, right? If Jesus stands up to the crowd and shouts out, you're an evil generation, if the Pharisee is thinking it's going to be nicer and friendlier at dinner, hmm, yeah, maybe not. Actually, as I've read and reread this passage over the years, i often wondered, did he ever get dinner? Because he starts the conversation before the appetizers even get to the table. And the conversation isn't the friendly dinner conversation that you and I would normally start. Because the Pharisee says, whoa, 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 whoa. And now, we don't know, did he call Jesus out or was he just murmuring to his Pharisee friends? But it's really clear that that the Pharisee is uncomfortable because Jesus doesn't wash. It says, the Pharisee was astonished to see that Jesus did not first wash before dinner. The Jews had a lot of rituals that they performed, and there were reasons for the rituals, but one of the rituals was before you touch food, you wash your hands. And this was before the days of antibacterial soap, Um, and it was meant to be more, not, not so much a get the bacteria off your hands, as it was meant to be a sign of we are about to eat food that is clean. What is clean is going to go into our bodies. Let's cleanse ourselves as we touch this so that we don't, quote-unquote, infect the cleanliness of what's going to go into our bodies. And Jesus doesn't wash. And his host is appalled. And Jesus, you know, in his friendly, loving way, not really, says, you fool, you pharisaical fool, you are full of greed, wickedness, and no amount of cup washing is ever going to fix that. Interesting way to start a dinner conversation. It's not enough for Jesus to say, Who cares about your cup washing? He has to push and poke a little further. He says, not only do you have these rituals of cup washings, but you tithe mint and rue and every herb, and you neglect justice and the love of God. You see, another part of the Jewish rituals, and a big part of their lifestyle, involved sacrifices and offerings of different kinds. Every time you turned around, there was another reason to give an offering of some kind or a sacrifice of some kind. And so the Pharisees had gotten it down to such a science that they literally divided the herbs that they used for the seasoning in their food. And they would take a little thing of, 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 uh, of mint and they would break off a bit and there's a bit for God, that's the sacrifice, and here's a bit for me and that'll go in the dinner tonight. Well, actually, it was more like here's a bit for God and here's nine bits for me. But but the ritual was, I'm going to sacrifice because God calls me to give a tithe, a tenth, and so I'll take off a tenth of every herb and, and pass it off to God. And Jesus says, you tithe mint and every herb, but you neglect justice. and You neglect the love of God. And he says, all of your cup washing and herb tithing and even your pew sitting in the synagogues, It's nothing more than outward show. The Pharisees loved to look religious. They wanted to appear righteous. They wanted to appear godly. But Jesus says, you've forgotten to show love and mercy and the justice of God. You see, it's not just about are you doing the right things on the outside, but it's about what's driving those things on the inside. Jesus says, Those things that were given to you, those rituals, were for a purpose, not just to do them, but to point to something else. See, these were the signs. For thousands of years, God had been giving the Jews signs. From from the very beginning, the covenant itself, the sign of circumcision itself, was a sign to point to something greater. It wasn't just for that thing. And the ritual of the washing wasn't just to say, I'm clean. It was to say, no, you're not clean. You need to be cleansed. But did they follow the signs? The Pharisees were very good at pointing people to the signs. Don't do this or do that. Don't do these things on the Sabbath. Don't do these in certain ways. Or make sure you do these other things on certain, in, in other certain ways but they were just reading the words without really understanding where the words were pointing. They were wandering in the countryside. They were looking for the kingdom of God. Have you come to usher in the kingdom? But they couldn't see the sign. Schloss, right here. And what was the message of right here, right now? Love God, love others. It was very simple. And love others with the love of God. Now it's worth noticing Jesus doesn't condemn the Pharisees for demonstrating the signs. He's not saying, how dare you wash your hands or how dare you tithe your herbs. No, he says specifically, you should have done the former. You should have demonstrated the love of God without neglecting these things. These could be good things. We're given rituals, we're given ceremonies, we're given outward symbols of of the demonstrations of what God is doing, those things aren't bad. But why do we do them? Do we do them as signs to point to something greater? Or do we do them so that we can just do them? Because if if that's all you're doing is just doing them, what's the point? Jesus says there isn't a point. In fact, the real point is to show you how wicked you really are because you do these things that demonstrate your need for a Savior and yet here's your Savior and you won't accept it. You won't follow the signs that point to Him. So don't set the outward signs aside as if they have no meaning. But take the signs for what they are. The signs of who we are. What we need. Follow the signs where they lead to understand this is the way to the kingdom of God. You want to find the heavenly castle? Jesus is the sign. Jesus is the one to whom all signs point. Don't just see the signs, follow the signs. Follow them to Jesus. This is where you need to be. Are you wise enough to even see the signs? Pray that God opens your eyes to see them. Are you wise enough to follow the signs because every single one of them is pointing to the Messiah, Jesus? And then come the lawyers. (laughs) And then come the lawyers. If we're wise enough to see and we're wise enough to follow, are we wise enough to teach? Are we wise enough to show others? Because really, that's what the lawyers were supposed to be all about, was showing others the way. It's a good story. We get to see the lawyer start dinner by putting his foot in his mouth. A rough way to get started. Now, I will say I'm impressed. He gets himself invited to dinner. Among modern lawyers, you typically think of the judges that get themselves invited to the free dinners. But, you know, times change. Um, and I say that to the judges, that's not a side jab. The, uh, the lawyer here gets himself invited to dinner, which is not an uncommon thing. The Pharisees, and another word for lawyer is often scribe. You see that frequently interchanged: lawyers and scribes. They're not, it's not always exactly the same thing, but that's close enough. The lawyers were the experts in the law. They studied the Jewish law to every fine detail. And so, Jesus uses some strong words to speak strong things to the Pharisees. Woe to you, for you don't follow the signs. And the lawyer can't help himself, and he says, whoa, wait a minute. One of the lawyers, it says in verse 45, answered Jesus, Teacher, in saying these things, you insult us also. Jesus says, this is my version. Oh, I've hurt your feelings, have I? You you think I was a bit harsh with him. You think perhaps I was being a bit harsh with you. No, actually, I meant to be a lot harsher with you. That's my translation, not Luke's. In the the first few verses in in 40 and 41 and following, Jesus speaks to the Pharisees, and the Pharisee gets slammed, so to speak, for being a hypocrite, for looking all good and clean on the outside, but having a heart that's far from God. The Pharisee has issues. But actually, the issues that Jesus points out are just really the Pharisee's issues. If you think about it, he points out, you don't follow the signs. That's a a bad thing. That's not good. I hate to say it this way, but at least it's contained to just the Pharisee being a problem. The lawyer, on the other hand, Jesus says, you don't just fail to follow the signs. You actually misdirect other people away from the signs. The problem isn't just you, although you're a problem. The problem is you're taking people with you in the wrong direction. the lawyer doesn't just get a tongue lashing for being far from God. He gets reprimanded for dragging others along. And so if the Pharisee was failing to follow the signs, the lawyer is the one standing in front of the sign, so you can't see it pointing the opposite direction, saying, yeah, the kingdom's over there. And if he'd step aside, the sign would say, no, the kingdom's over there. And Jesus says, the lawyers have done what the prior generations have done. They've destroyed the prophets. Now, if you think about who these people are, these lawyers, they're the experts in the law. They're the ones that many of them had their training as a scribe. And that's just what you think of, scribe, right. So the way they would be trained is you would be given a book of scripture or a scroll And you would copy it word for word, letter for letter, dot for dot. And there was a very specific process that you would go through to make sure that your copying was exactly dot for dot, like the original. This was before the electronic age of duplicating information, and so a scribe would manually by hand write the letter. And in the process, they would memorize pages and pages and pages of scriptures, They were experts. Don't misunderstand. These are not lawyers pretending to be experts in the law. They knew it. If you gave them a verse, well, the verses weren't actually there. But if you gave them a passage and started them with, you know, if you're old enough to remember, name that tune. I can name that tune in three notes, and they'd play like three notes on the piano, and then the guy would come up with, oh, that's Chopin's number two. I don't know what they are, you know. Well, the lawyers could do that with the Bible verses, where you could say, all right, I'll start the verse with three words. Then the other lawyer would say, I can name that verse in two words. And so somebody would go, all right, the verse is in the, and he would go off, in the beginning, Uh, whatever. I mean, they knew their scriptures. Their job was to preserve the scriptures. Their job was to take the words of the prophets and pass them on to those that needed to hear them, their Jewish brothers and sisters. And in verse 52, Jesus says, woe to you lawyers. You've taken away the key of knowledge. You did not enter yourselves, and you hindered those who are entering. What does he mean? He says, first of all, you've, you've participated in the death of the prophets because you've damaged their words. You've taken away truth. And now, he says, you've taken away the key of knowledge. Not only are you not following the signs, but you've prevented others. The men who are supposed to be the smartest when it comes to the Jewish law are taking away the knowledge that the people need. It's equivalent of saying, you're a musician, and yet you insist on playing out of tune. Or or you're a physician, but you like to make people sick, not heal them. You're an expert in the law, but you don't use the law rightly because you're hurting your people. You're not helping your people. You've taken away the key to knowledge. What's this key? What is this magic key to understanding what this law and these prophets are all about? Proverbs, chapter 1, verse 7. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. And and keep in mind, in the Bible, the word fool doesn't mean a a silly person or an ignorant person like we often use it. It means a, a, a morally incapable person or a person who said, no God. There is no God. That's the fool. The one who says there is no God despises wisdom. Why? Because the fear of God, that's the key to wisdom. Think about it. What were these experts in the law doing? What were these Pharisees doing? They were putting on a show for the people to see, right? They were much more interested in what men think than in what God thinks. There was no fear of God before them. There was a fear of men before them. What can I do on the outside that will make people think I'm good? Not, what do I look like on the inside that must make God think I'm horrible? And what must I do to be saved? No, it was what can I do to look good? The key to knowledge is the fear of the Lord. And, And while these lawyers might have passed on information, they didn't pass on that fear. In fact, the people were afraid of them the Jewish people at the time weren't so much afraid of the God who ruled, they were afraid of these teachers who taught and wanting to please them and honor them. And it's important for us who live in this age of information where, in a sense, knowledge, maybe knowledge with a little k at the beginning, knowledge is everywhere. We have information at our fingertips. We have information that, you know, I don't want to say this too loudly because I'm afraid all your phones will go off, but you ask Siri and she'll tell you the answer, right? Well, in their day, they had information. It was these scriptures that were copied over and over and over again. But having information isn't knowledge. Hmm. And it isn't wisdom because according to scripture, it begins with the fear of the Lord. And so if you really want to point people to the signs. And if you really want people to see the signs and actually follow the signs, you start with the fear of the Lord. Who is God? Do you know this amazing God that we worship? Do you know where you stand before him? Do you know? Let me show you God. And when Jesus goes on and says, woe to you lawyers, you load people with burdens hard to bear. You yourselves don't touch the burdens with one of your fingers. And this is where I feel the weight of these words. This woe to you, this alas, this deep, sorrowful cry. Jesus cries out in sorrow or frustration, a bit of anger perhaps, and and it's almost as though he's lost someone close to him. And I'll be honest, I get to this point and I think, is that me? Do I stand here? Do I sit with people in their homes? Do I meet with people over the table and and I give them a burden that they can't bear and I refuse to lift my finger to help? I pray that I don't. I pray that you feel the weight of these words. It is a burden. You should feel weighted. But I pray that we as brothers and sisters don't simply stand back and look at one another and go, good luck. But I pray that we come alongside each other and we say, I know the weight of that burden because I'm in the same spot and that burden that weighs in on you because of the sin, because of the law, I know how to lift the burden. Not me, but the one the signs point to. Come on, let's go. Let's go to Jesus, because he's the one that lifts the burden. We need to go together. I'm grateful that I can see the signs. God has given me that gift. It's nothing that I could have mustered up, and I'm grateful for that. I do what I can to follow the signs, poorly, often, but I do what I can. And I pray that I can show others These are the signs that you need to follow. I don't know if you resonate with this passage like I do. This is a passage that every time I read through it, it just, it digs at me in good ways. But I would ask you the same questions. Do you see the signs? And in a a room this size, there are those who don't. As much as we'd like to think that everybody who comes to worship with us on Sunday morning worships the same God, there is undoubtedly someone here who has not yet seen the signs that point to Jesus. I pray that you'll see them. And if not yet, that you'll ask, help me to understand, help me to see. And for those of us that see the signs, I pray that we follow them. I pray that we don't just cast them aside. The arrow points the kingdom this way but it would be a lot more fun to take this big open path this direction. No. Do you struggle to follow the signs? Know who Jesus is. Run to him. The signs point to a very clear message. Jesus came to rule. He came to reign. He came to save. Praise God. He came to redeem. But you don't get one without the other. You don't get salvation and redemption without rule and reign. And so follow the signs with me as best we can by God's grace. And then this question, are you wise enough to point the signs to other people? To not just run your own race and to walk your own way and do what God requires of you in your own little world, but are you wise enough to say no God has given me this gift to share. We can't teach as the lawyers taught, not in Jesus' day, saying do this or don't do that without telling people, why would we do that or not do the other? Not because of the things in themselves. We don't show up on Sunday morning and sing songs just so we can say we spent an hour singing songs. We show up on Sunday morning and sing songs because we want to worship the God that those songs point to. And if we don't understand that, then we we express knowledge without the fear of the Lord. And without the fear of the Lord, that knowledge is useless. So, can you show that mercy, that fear, that love to someone this week? Is there a way that As you go about your day-to-day this week, you can take somebody by the hand and say, look, I saw this sign, and I'm trying to follow it because I know where it will take me. And I know it will take me to Jesus and his kingdom. You want to go? It's going to be a really cool trip. It's going to be a really hilly road. It's going to be a lot of ups and a lot of downs. But when we get there, There's this really amazing castle. It's worth it. It's so worth it. Father, I pray that you would just stir up within us a passion to follow, to chase after Jesus. God, I pray that you would open the eyes of the blind to see the signs that point to him. I pray that you would would well up in us a drive, a desire, an urge to follow wherever those signs lead, to chase Jesus as he leads us. And I pray, God, that you would not let us bottle that up, but that we would want to share it with others, that others would come into our midst to worship the God that we worship, to lift up the Savior that we lift up, to love with your love. God, may you be merciful to do your work in us and through us by Christ. Amen. The Apostle Paul, in his letter to the Corinthians, said, For Jews demand signs. Greeks, that's us, seek wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles, but to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God, the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. Go this week in the weakness of men, the strength of God, whose Christ, our wisdom, our all in all. Amen. Thank you for joining us. For more information about our church, please visit our church's website at kishbible.org. That's kishbible.org.